Welcome back, creeps. What up? Is that what I usually say? Welcome, creeps. Welcome back, creeps. I don't know. Recording these back to back, so our banter might be a little bit weird. Uh, we just ate pumpkin bites and curly fries. Those are the croissant pumpkin bites from Jack in the Box. Highly recommend. <laughs> Highly recommend. They're gorgeous. All right. I like I the curly them. fries from Jack in the Box. Yeah. But it's neither here nor there. We health, we are healthy in this household. It's called balance. <laughs> you are healthy in this household. <laughs> Sign up to Patreon so I can pay for a new gym subscription. <laughs> um, seriously, though, I need to start going to the gym again. Pull a card? Yeah, go ahead and pull a card. Let's do this on the top. All right. So... This episode's card of the day. Those things had a lot of sugar. I don't know if I'm going to sleep tonight. Um, <laughs> Downton Abbey uh, Marathon. marathon. <laughs> We're on the last season, y'all. Tom, the Irish fella from Downton. Actually, I'm not going to ruin it for you. In case you're going to watch it. Anyway, that's all. We're on the last season now. All right. So today's card. Today. Wait, no. Yeah. This episode's card is the Two of Pentacles. All right. Let's explain the Two of Pentacles. The Two of Pentacles represents multitasking and nimble movement. When this card appears, you have a lot to deal with and you deal with it with ease and grace. This card requires you to be flexible and adaptable, to take life's ups and downs as they come, to go with the flow. Like the juggler in life, we sometimes have to keep more than one ball in the air. Though we may drop the ball sometimes, we can keep at it with a smile on our face. And we will become wiser and stronger and ready to take on even more. Alternatively, it may be a case that someone is doing a lot of busy work in order to ignore overwhelming emotions or to feel like they have control over a uncontrollable situation. This card could also be telling you to follow the money. You may need to travel or even move house in order to take advantage of material opportunities. So it's funny. I was just talking to Manelli about um, tarot cards because there's like different kinds of uh, cards of divination. Like there's there's a uh, loteria cards, which are read differently than tarot. There's also barajas, um, which is has completely different suits and meanings to their cards. So she's well-versed in those two forms as well as tarot and she was saying like tarot cards is like one card can mean several things and when you're pulling a card um usually you just want to read the entire like look at the entirety of the message and and just keep that in mind as you go about your day and then like when things pop off you kind of just recall the card that you pulled but um in a spread, you kind of just like when, like say you're reading someone's cards, you have to like it's important to ask questions of the person who you're reading the cards for because um, it's a combination of the bits of information that you get from the person, what you, what the reader's intuition is telling them, and how all the cards relate to each other. But because it has several meaning, it's important to have a discussion whenever you're reading someone's cards. So, like, you can't just, and I don't know, like, so So when you're, if you ever decide to go for a tarot reading, just know that. Don't go in expecting, like, you know, to say nothing. And then just expect to receive a message that will relate to your life. You know what I mean? So that's tarot, right? But she was saying how interesting it is, like for Baraha's example, it, for example, it tells you exactly what's going to go down. Like um, she pulled a spread for herself and it told her like in layman turns, you know, your loved one's not coming home tonight because they have something to do. And someone like that you have beef with is going to show up, you know, and that's exactly what happens, Jesus. you know. Whereas tarot, it's just like, it get, it's a flood of information in one card. And that's just like, not like if it's reverse, even more information. But um, yeah, I just thought that was interesting. So you have to be open-minded and basically know that it's... Yeah. 
Like, it's a very, like, it's an experience that has to be tailored to you. You know, yeah. you, you can't just be like, expect your reader to treat you like an oil painting. Like, there has to be a conversation, an exchange of, of um, energies so that the reader understands you best. It's because, like, if you don't do that, like, you're robbing yourself of, like, a real experience where you can walk away with solid advice. You know yeah. what I mean? Wow. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I just wanted to like, like I, <laughs> I just want to give like bits of information that might yeah, help yeah. people, you know, in regards to things that I know a little bit about, you know, can people buy stuff from Manelli's mm -hmm. shop online? Mm -hmm. Actually, she has a deal going right now. That's 10% off your first order. You can find her at Pink Moon Mexicana. Well, I'm going to say it the English way, uh, Pink Moon Mexicana. Um, that's her Instagram. That's her website. And yeah, check her out. Her stuff is pretty quality. Yeah. And that's Manelli, who is, we've actually had listeners request um, updates from Manelli and Mary Carmen. But yeah, she was on her a much earlier episode of Weekly Creep. Just telling us about her spooky happenings honestly yeah. But yeah she's lovely she sells her her witchy stuff online and she does readings and she does readings yeah and she's like goes to market so if you're like yeah if you're in the houston area yeah like she posts the markets that she's gonna be at on her instagram page yeah and if we can we'll go if houston people want to go to the market and we'll do a double header you know you can shop at Manelli's and say hello to us yeah yeah right this story was recommended to us by one of our patrons Andrea or Andrea I'm pretty sure it's Andrea I think Andrea is a like a, a very English way of pronouncing Andrea mm. um but that could be the way you pronounce it and I'm sorry I didn't ask but to be perfectly honest I was expecting this story to be like one of those kind of places that like ghost hunting TV shows go to, but there's no real like information or history about it, mm. you know? So I thought like, okay, I'll look into it because it's got a pretty cool name. So I was like, let me just check it out and maybe I'll do like a small Patreon episode for it. All right. So what is it? Well, just wait. Oh, okay. The build off's not over. Because over <laughs> boy heck and hell was I wrong about this one. As far as urban legends go, I think it's fair to say that this place is rife. Okay. Okay. Like, the, just the amount of crap that came up about it. All I right. was like, okay, interesting. But in all actuality, the real story is far more interesting mm -hmm. and far more tragic. Okay. So for us, the story starts on a cold and miserable December day in 1982 in Bovina, Mississippi. Or Bovina. I think it's Bovina. <laughs> Two construction workers had been rained out, so they decided they'd take their metal detectors and go hunting for Civil War treasures in a historical park in Vicksburg. As you do. As you do. Only to see that the rain was coming for that park too. So on a whim, they stopped at this rest area in Bovina to go treasure hunting. And there was a bit of land behind this rest area. Mm -hmm. This is the one that I thought we were at. Like last week. Okay. But we weren't because it was in Mississippi. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it was very similar. So the rest area itself is literally just a slip on a slip off the interstate. Okay. Like no facilities, no toilets, no nothing. Oh. Uh, just a place to get some sleep. Okay. Which like today it's actually completely blocked off. The slip is still there, but you can't pull up there. Oh. And then a few miles down the road, there's an actual truck stop. Okay. I've been there on Google Earth. So yeah, at the time, it was just a place for truckers mostly to pull over and get some sleep, which is exactly what Kirby Key Phelps was doing on the morning of December 15th, 1982, when he was rudely awakened by two men. Kirby assumed that these two lads were just looking for directions, but when he rolled down the window, one of them pulled a gun on him and shouted for him to get out of the car. Kirby told the two men to take whatever they wanted. He was just trying to get home for Christmas. The older of the two men instructed the younger one to go grab handcuffs from their own car, which was a 1976 Jeep CJ5. Once Kirby was handcuffed, he was instructed to walk up into the wooded area beyond the rest stop. 
He was told he was going to be bound to a tree up in the woods a ways off the road. And when he asked the man if he was going to kill him, he was told, quote, not unless I have to. Meanwhile, the younger of the two started emptying the stuff from the Jeep into Kirby's Toyota. Kirby was the only child of his widowed mother, Vinita Phelps. And he had made her incredibly proud by following in his late father's footsteps and joining the Navy. He had been training in Jacksonville, Florida, and was to report to Long Beach, California in January of 1983. This worked out perfectly because it meant he could split the drive and head to Oklahoma City to spend his Christmas break with his mother, which is why he was in the Bovina rest area. Later that morning, as the two Civil War nerds were searching the wooded area for relics and treasure, they stumbled upon Kirby's freshly murdered body. The following day, the 1976 Jeep CJ5 was found discarded in a soybean field in Madison Parish, Louisiana, approximately 38 miles from the rest area. Now, I will admit that I probably spent a bit too long here trying to find out the correct dates and times, but according to the court documents, Kirby was killed on the morning of the 15th, while the farmer who found the Jeep said that it was actually left there on the 14th. So there's a bit of confusion here with the witnesses and the actual court documents. So apologies if my dates confuse anyone. But regardless, the Jeep was officially found on the 16th of December. And obviously there was no sign of Kirby's Toyota or the two men. The license plate had been removed and the two bolts were left on the back bumper. So this showed the, the cop who found it straight off the bat that this was an intentional thing. This thing was... They were trying to hide this vehicle. It wasn't that they just broke down on the side of the road and pulled in until they could come back. So this was a red flag. And a cursory inspection of the Jeep led the cop to find a bunch of hamburger papers, soiled men's clothes, and bank documents or receipts belonging to Charles Scudder and Joseph Odom from Tryon, Georgia. Were these men the owner of this mysterious black Jeep which had two inverted stars on the door? What did these two men have to do with poor Kirby Phelps? Well, let me tell you. So this Jeep was in fact registered to Charles Scudder. So we'll start with him. Born Charles Lee Scudder on October 6th, 1926 in effervescent Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. Wauwatosa is named after the Potawatomi chief Wauwatosi, I think which is also the Potawatomi word for firefly. Hmm. And that's about the coolest thing about Wauwatosa that a quick Google search brought up. I was really trying to find like cool stuff from this town, but uh, sorry, guys, any listeners from there, let us know if there is anything else going on there because Google says not. His father, Charles Sr., was an accomplished man with a good work ethic, which he instilled in both of his children, Charles and his sister, Janet both of whom were good kids who excelled in school and Charles would eventually go on to take science as a major in college. Is that how you say it? Like you yeah. would take something as a major? Okay. Anyway, he was a science major, but he was also a fantastic artist and seemed to be one of those people who would just thrive in any situation from the sound of things. To prove this, he had learned how to play the harp and was even asked to join the Chicago Orchestra and declined. He was like, sorry, Bit too busy. <laughs> Fair. He would eventually earn himself a bachelor in zoology with a minor in languages, followed by a master's in zoology with a minor in chemistry from the University of Wisconsin. And it was at the University of Wisconsin that Charles met Bortai Bunting, who was the daughter of an English poet named Basil Bunting. What was her first name? Bortai. It could be Bertie, but it's pronounced, it's spelled B-O-U-R-T-A-I. So it probably was Bertie, but All right. Bortai, I don't know. I actually Googled how to, I couldn't. In 1949, Charles married Bortai, Bertie, and they would have four sons in rapid succession before the two split up. Just bam, bam, bam. Yeah, literally. Charles would later admit that he never really felt cut out for marriage, but he wanted to be a father and experience that. And to prove this... Bortai, Bertie, was actually Charles's second wife. 
So he had married a distant cousin of his mother just after his dad died, but it only lasted a few weeks. Um, there was a few problems. Charles and his first wife, Helen, had a great connection and Charles had actually attended his first year of college in Ohio just so the two could be together. But right after they got married, he decided he actually wanted to go to college in Wisconsin, which was his initial plan. So there was also the fact that his dad had just passed away like that summer. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, he felt rushed into marriage mm -hmm. out of like an emotional response to make like Papa Charles proud. Yeah, possibly. Okay. That's conjecture on my part. But there was another detail that meant that the marriage would never work out. Charles wasn't attracted to Helen, who was described as like, you know, homely or something like that. A really nice way of saying that she wasn't conventionally attractive. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't attracted to his second wife, Bortai, either. Not really, anyway. And he wondered why he wasn't cut up for marriage? Well, the fact was he wasn't really attracted to any woman. Oh. Yeah. So Charles was gay. Mm. He had known ever since he was quite young, but as so many men did growing up in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and yeah. still today, he got married so as to appear like a regular old straight Steve, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that still feel like they have to do exactly that. But back then, being outed as gay could cost you your job and even get you put in jail. Mm. In the late 1950s, Charles took a job as an instructor in the biology department of the University of Illinois in Chicago. He would go on to study pharmacology at Loyola University's School of Medicine, also in Chicago. So now that his life was fairly cemented there, Charles bought a really nice house in a not so nice part of town and he moved in with his four boys. I'm not really sure what was like going on with Bortai at this time. The only information I found was that she was, I think, arrested in like relation to some fucking uh, protest that was going on. Uh -huh. So like, but in a cool way, you know, <laughs> she was on the good side of things. All right, Bortai. From what I could see. Yeah. So which like rings true to, we'll learn more about Charles as we go on, but he was definitely a radical, you know? Mm -hmm. So all of the people that he would have aligned with whether he was attracted to them or not, were of a similar mindset, you know? Anyway. I have something to talk about. Yeah, exactly. If you're not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I don't know what the arrangement was, but he had, uh, what's the word? He had not possession of the four children. Custody. Custody. Jesus Christ. Sorry. <laughs> if it's not written down in front of me, I don't know. But his house was on West Adams Street. And it was described as a mansion. I did my usual like nosy snooping on Google Street View here. And there's a lot of like actually nice looking houses on that street, West Adams Street in Chicago. But you can tell that they might have been like, I don't think the area is as nice as it once was. Mm. Even today, probably not as bad now as it was in the uh, when Charles bought his house. Mm -hmm. But you can tell that like a lot of these houses would have been bought and divided up into apartments and stuff. But either way, they're just like really nice, classic old houses that you would expect to find in a bustling American city a hundred years ago, you know? So one really cool little link here, though, is that Andrea, or Andrea, I'm really sorry, who recommended that we cover this story also suggested that we do an episode on Frank Lloyd Wright. Okay. Have you ever heard of this guy? No. Okay. He was a super famous American architect with a very interesting and very sad story. Well, the house that Charles bought was designed by a student of Wright. Okay. So that's what it's like known for. It's like this house was built by one of Frank Lloyd Wright's students. Mm. Okay. So it's like, oh, that's pretty interesting. But I'm sure I know that name from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Frank Lloyd Wright was, was one of the main architects during the World's Fair in Chicago in like 1890 something when H.H. H. Holmes was, was about. Yeah. So that's why I knew the fucking name. But I just thought it was really cool that she happened to bring up both of these stories, like organically, as mm -hmm. far as I know. And then I was, I like put the little link together. And I was like, are all of our stories related? Now? <laughs> you know I, mean? I mean, I'm sure they were like, it all took place in Chicago. You know what I mean? But the reason why I'm harping on about this house so much is because it really shows the other side of Charles's character. See, he filled this house 
with a bunch of really cool antiques that he actually purchased from an old theater that was going out of business. Mm-hmm. So he, he was like fairly well to do to the point where he had money to go to this closing down sale of this. I can't remember the name of the theater, but it was supposed to be like, you know, a renowned theater and just bought all the furniture from it and like was able to fill the house then to his thing. He was basically just an old goth, you know, before goths were a thing. And like one of the other things that he loved about the house was the fact that it was on West Adams Street. And it reminded him of the Adams family. Like, you, know what I mean? <laughs> you forget how old the Adams family is. Yeah, because at the time, I think they were just uh, in the funny papers. Mm. So anyway, the old antiques from the theater, along with the houses, stained glass windows and vaulted ceilings made it a very spooky mansion that he loved, you know. So Charles was one of us. You know what I mean? If he was around now, one he'd be us. one of us. Yeah, he'd be buying like. Halloween stuff in home goods just to keep up in his house all year round. Home goods. But in 1959, he met Joey Odom, who was a younger man, 12 years younger, and he had had a very different background and upbringing. Joey had been raised in a poor family. He left school in the fifth grade and went from one menial job to the next. He seemed to just take work wherever he could get it, but he was predominantly a cook. Or at least that's what he preferred to do, you know? When Charles and him met, he was working in a bookshop and Charles came in probably looking for the most obscure book in the world. And so the two of them got to talking and like he was often being described. He was often described as being the exact opposite of Charles, Mm -hmm. where Charles was kind of aloof. Yeah, he was more friendly. No, not that he was more friendly. He Charles was more friendly, Mm -hmm. like straight off the bat. But Joey had a read on people. Mm. where Charles could sometimes have his head in the clouds Mm -hmm. and not really get the source on the situation. You know what I mean? He was, Charles was extremely smart and intelligent, but Joey was street smart. I see. But people came to think that Joey and Charles complimented each other. The two hit it off though. And soon Charles actually employed Joey as a live-in cook and housekeeper. Yeah, he would help looking after the four boys and the dogs while Charles was at work and finishing his PhD. Like, Charles was a very busy man. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> With four kids, dude. Yeah, who I don't really think he was aware of. Like, he didn't you know, know that, that four kids would be work? Yeah, or he just was like, oh, look, there's children. I have to go to work. <laughs> Bye. Like, that. so that's my impression of Charles. I'm yeah. not saying it's right, but... Like, he was Willy Wonka or something. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah a little bit. And um, Joey was also gay. Although he was a practicing Catholic, where Charles was growing more and more disenchanted with the church, almost by the minute. And while the two of them were known to be intimate, I don't think they were ever romantically exclusive. And their relationship definitely seemed to be more platonic, especially as it grew on. But like both of them were fine with this, you know what I mean? It wasn't a scandalous affair or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were on the same page. Yeah. In 1964, Charles got his PhD in pharmacology and was given the role of assistant director of the Institute for the Study of Mind, Drugs and Behavior, which was a very new, very small department. And in a letter to friends, Charles said, actually, before I quote that, like this was literally one of those 1960s labs where they would make LSD, pure fucking LSD and test it out on people. Even just test it out on each other, just to be like, wonder what's going to happen if I do this. Yeah. And then they would document fucking everything, you know. Mm -hmm. But it was also a college run by Jesuit priests. So a very strange kind of crossover here. Yeah, it is weird. Anyway, in a letter to friends, Charles would say, When it began, it was a place where people worked hard with pleasure and combined their work with volleyball games, tennis, painting murals on their laboratory walls, etc. There was complete freedom. By this, I mean that people felt free to say and to do what seemed most sensible. They freely helped one another. When there wasn't much to do, they played games. When there was a lot to do, they worked cheerfully all night. Then, over the years between new management and stricter rules, Charles began to feel like the work he was doing wasn't really science anymore. They would be turned away when they tried to come up with original ideas. But if they came up with an experiment that proved something that someone else had already done, then they would get the grant. 
Yeah, so... That seems like reinventing the wheel. Kind of, yeah. How strange. And it, by the sounds of things, like this was... Like, if you went to, to these, whoever the higher-ups were, these Jesuit priests, and were like, look, I've done this experiment before, but now I'd like to try it, say, in this case, like, I want to use the LSD, but in this situation, I'm not sure what the outcome would be. They'd be like, ah, no, we don't want to do it. But if you go to them with all of these, like, pages of proved evidence already, and we're like, look, this has been carried out before. This is how I think it's going to go down to like a decimal. They'd be like, sold. Here's the money. So it just got weird. You know what I mean? And that I'm sure weird. that's exactly how 99% of colleges are today still, you know? That's interesting because it's like, you're not really developing anything new and you're staying within your safe zone. And you're just reproving your old points. So then when people look at your experiments, they're going, ah, yes, all their experiments are working. We must give them more money. But what people aren't looking at is that all of the experiments are the same fucking experiment. How weird. Worded differently. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's the impression that I got from this. If you're a listener and you're a science person, scientist, I think that's what they call them. It does what they call these days. <laughs> yeah, do reach out. Let us yeah, know. Yeah, let us know. Like, is that how it is? Like, basically, it made it sound like the college was more interested in the in bureaucratic bullshit yeah, yeah, yeah. than the actual science. Whereas when it was initially started, they were aware that these scientists were creative people and needed to nurture their creative minds. And if that meant taking two weeks to paint a fucking mural, but come up with an idea, then that's what happened, you know? Yeah. Let us know, science wizards. Yes. Or creative wizards. Yeah, then there was also the fact that, like, even some of Charles's colleagues didn't really approve of him personally. Because um, he wasn't a fucking stiff, man. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> He's not a suit. Yeah, literally. Like, some of these people would come to work every day in their, like, suit or whatever. Whereas Charles didn't he dressed in like bright clothes all purple and a top hat. you should say that oh <laughs> <laughs> he was really wonky <laughs> no but like he would wear interesting jewelry i think what the author was alluding to was sometimes he would come in wearing like ladies jewelry mm. which in the where are we the 70s i guess 60s still actually mm. before um, david bowie yeah <laughs> and he even dyed his hair purple at one point sick yeah well, he was just fucking cool. You know what I mean? Like, he, he wasn't like this picture-perfect scientist. He was devoted to his craft mm -hmm. and blew off steam in this way by being kind of the odd man, like, you know? Yeah. So over the course of the few years working for the college, he was expanding his horizons with esoteric and occult readings. Thick. Yeah. Because he felt that so often the scientific answers were so reductionist and like avoiding a lot of the questions mm. that typically kind of like here's where the science and religion would meet. They would go, well, because science, you know, or because God. And this just didn't sit right with Charles. You know what I mean? Yeah. So as well as all this in his spare time, he was still actively producing art and even got into like some very big Chicago shows. And one of his colleagues and kind of boyfriends i guess like he what seemed to be the driving force behind his like I, I think it was mostly painting but like pushing him in his career for painting but uh yeah so it, it, like some of his work sold for quite a bit of money and like he was very successful you know like and like i said in everything that he went into then in 1973 Charles found out that his youngest son, Ahab, passed away suddenly. He was only 19. Um, I couldn't find out what happened. But Find a Grave said that he died in 1970. The book said 73. I'm going to go with the book's dates, although I've been proven that wrong already. So I don't know. Either way, it was clearly devastating news. Um, so this, combined with his lack of love for his work and that very close friend in the art field or art sector or whatever, he actually moved away to California to start. Uh, he was a professor as well. So he moved over there to start lecturing. And this led Charles and Joey to decide that it was time to get out of Chicago. Mm. They were done with Chicago. 
They were trying to weigh up their options. The house that Charles had once loved so much was now becoming more of a burden and the area was becoming more and more unsafe to the point where like his friends didn't even want to come over anymore just to visit. So I think crime was rampant Mm. and this marvellous old mansion was starting to fall down around them. He had come into a small inheritance from somewhere and decided over the next three years to get to tie up all their loose ends in Chicago and then look for a paradise. Quote, some place in hilly country with the glamour of four seasons, but without super cold winters, with a good supply of pure water and wood for heating and cooking, and most important, with the measure of isolation. After years of enduring the sensory overload of city life, I, Charles, desperately wanted to be situated where I could neither see nor hear my neighbours. So with that, they found their lot in 1975. 40 acres in the foothills of Appalachia in Chattooga County, Georgia. Just a couple of hours from Atlanta or also just a couple of hours from Huntsville, Alabama. So it wasn't some fancy mansion like in the woods or anything like that. This was 40 acres of bare woodland. Well, not bare woodland. This was 40 acres of woodland that they got for just ten and a half thousand dollars. They didn't have a huge amount of money like saved up to live there either. The plan was to live completely off grid, no electricity. Back then they didn't have like, you know, fancy solar battery generators or anything like that or cell phones. It was going to be completely off grid living. Like pilgrim shit. Pretty much. They were going to grow as much of their own food as they possibly could while like living off of around $100 a month, which was the estimated interest on Charles's little inheritance and pension. Okay, so not the end of the world in the 70s either, like, you know, $100 a month for purely for groceries like milk and stuff Um, because they weren't going to have any bills. So after seeing and buying the land, Charles went back to Chicago for another few months and handed in his notice to the college on his 50th birthday, October 6th, 1976. With that, Charles promptly sold off whatever possessions he didn't want to drag to Georgia, keeping just a few prized antiques and personal treasures. He then bought a 1976 CJ5 Jeep and a small camper and headed off. So, Charles being a professor, like, used to write to different magazines and stuff. He was a, he was a writer as well, like, as everything else. So it's really nice that one really detailed article or essay that he sent purely about moving in to this place was written so i'm going to go back and quote that magazine uh or that essay from the magazine which was mother earth news which is now a website joe the dogs and i left the city during an icy blizzard we lost our way several times in the course of the trip couldn't find the property when we did reach the area and spent the night parked and lost and after we had finally located our new home site the storm grew worse our winding logging trail driveway disappeared completely. For the next few days, we were alone and stranded in the wilderness and had to begin our new life by melting snow for our water supply. Where were their kids? No, grown and dead. Oh. So So it was just him and Joe. Just him and Joe and the dogs. The kids were already raised. Kids were, and I think, had nothing to do with Charles. Oh. Yeah. But the fact that their story kind of starts out with them melting snow for their water supply. Mm-hmm. Reminded me an awful lot of the story from the Andes and the boys trying to melt their water for their fucking drinking water. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was another little interesting tie-in. So it's now at age 50 that I personally feel Charles was able to start living and expressing himself just how he wanted. And it's one of the main reasons why I really wanted to cover this story. Like it crosses a lot of like, my interests anyway. And I think every probably young dude's interest you know like yeah man i'm just gonna go off buy some land in the mountains and live completely off grid not answer to anybody you know yeah but these two actually did it and the two boys and their beloved dogs left on an adventure to live on and off of their own land their land which in the middle of this midwinter snowstorm didn't even allow them access to running water they were going to start from scratch and build the house of their dreams so I'm going to do my best not to get caught up 
too much in the construction facts. But the first thing they did was start clearing the land using a chainsaw and hand tools in the snow in the middle of winter. Wow. Like Charles was a fucking professor. <laughs> like yeah. Just straight into this backbreaking work. Um, they had a pump installed. Or the, sorry, they had a well installed. Mm-hmm. But they install, installed the pump to get like just fresh running water. Um, and then they got a chemical toilet. So they didn't have a big pile of crap just like growing up all around them. And over the next year, they would get to work on foundations, pipe laying, <laughs> and would eventually build a strange looking mini mansion in the middle of nowhere. Cool. They used 45,000 bricks. That's cool, a lot of fucking it? bricks. Yeah. wonder how big that, that house that's was. That's all the facts. Uh, I, I'll show you photos. Okay. They're pretty big though. And like Charles used, I think it was called like medieval style architecture. Sick. Like, so, okay. Show me pictures later. Yeah, but just real quick. So the 45,000 bricks would be because he built like cavity walls out of the bricks. Mm-hmm. So it'd be line of bricks, an air gap, line of bricks, air gap, and a line of bricks. That was his wall. So the air within those walls provided the insulation to keep it cool in the oh, summer, okay. warm in the winter. Clever. That's all the construction facts we're getting. Okay. But as isolated as they were and as inconspicuous as they thought they were, outdoorsmen would occasionally stumble upon their building site while out hunting or hiking or doing whatever. And as much as you might think the two gay northerners in the middle of a Georgia woods might not fare too well, especially considering that all of their valuables were just lying under a see-through tarp on the ground, the two lads soon made a really good name for themselves. Like in the local area, people would call out and see how they were getting on and Charles would serve homemade wine. And soon enough, people were bringing bags of their own fruit that they had taken off their own land or even just bought in the town. And Charles would make special wine and name the bottles after whoever brought the fruits. Like, oh, that's nice. We'll say it's peach wine or whatever it was. People could also see that these two lads, like they were hard workers and they weren't doing anyone any harm, you know. Now, the lads weren't totally naive either. Some of the visitors were coming out to just kind of like laugh at them, you know, like I'm sure not in a bad way, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of kids started to get wind like and they would just show up and be like, what are you guys doing? And Charles was able to handle himself. Yeah. You know, I um, suppose if you're like 50 and people would suspect these things of you, you'd kind of get used to that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, um, or how to handle it rather. Yeah, and like then other kids and not just kids, but other people were coming out just to score free wine mm. or tea and baked goods, whatever they had on offer. Because remember, Joey was a cook. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A, a fabulous cook by the sounds of things, like a real Mrs. Patmore. <laughs> <laughs> um, that being said, even when the house was finished, they didn't just let anyone in. They accepted everyone, but they would sit at a table outside like to enjoy their refreshments and make it clear when it was time to go. But they weren't going to start shouting at random people or cause arguments or anything like that because they were so isolated. It also helped that they had their two lovely dogs, old English mastiffs named Beelzebub and Arsenath. Aren't those like the really big dogs? Yes. (laughs) Fucking giants, right? (laughs) Named Beelzebub and Arsenath. If Charles sensed any sort of rowdiness or danger from the people that he was entertaining, he would throw a, an empty beer can or something to one of the dogs and they would just see how quickly the dogs fucking destroyed it, right? <laughs> like one bite and this thing was gone. And that was usually enough to just like calm people down and be like, all right, I guess it's time to go then. Yeah. And he'd be like petting Beelzebub or whatever. Yeah. Uh, the dog's names are again a true sign of Charles's personality. And... I should probably explain how the property got its name. The first time Charles had gone to view the property, he found the path partially blocked by the rotting carcass of a dead horse. And so the long winding logging trail that was their driveway became lovingly known as Dead Horse Road. (laughs) When the post office gave them their mailing address, Route 1, Box 589, Charles didn't like it. It was far too boring. And so he dubbed the property Corpse Wood. (laughs) Nice. Again, after the corpse rotting in the middle of the wood. Yeah. Uh, And like, that's where the legend became. 
So if you Google today, Corpsewood Manor, like you're going to get an awful lot of information. Um, and it's just fucking cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if, if we were told this is Corpsewood Manor is George's Hellfire Club. You know what I mean? Uh, it's the cool place up in the middle of the hills where kids go now to scare themselves, you mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. But also worth mentioning is that if you found Corpsewood, say on a dark, rainy night after driving forever through the winding back roads, which aren't even like these are logging trails. They're they're not surfaced or anything. They're just dirt roads. So after driving through these winding back roads, you would turn onto Dead Horse Road. And as your headlights danced among the shadows of the trees, you would find the sign hanging from one of them with old English lettering declaring, Beware of the thing. How fucking cool is that? Just Charles again being a fucking nerd. You know I mean? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so fucking cool. The house itself was like domineering. Two stories high, made of three layered brick walls for air insulation. There was a gazebo. Gaze gazebo? Yeah. yeah. There was a gazebo that looked half finished, connected to the second story by a footbridge with no railings and a giant black steel door. Nice. A winged gargoyle sat perched looking out from the gazebo, from the gazebo, keeping watch. The walls were being consumed by ivy, making the house look like it might become just as much a part of the woods as the trees. Handmade stained glass windows portraying the beloved sigil of Baphomet, skulls and houseflies gave the impression that if there was not someone standing behind them watching you approach, then the very windows themselves were watching. Inside the house, there were pentagrams, human skulls, black candles, books from floor to ceiling in a room filled with antique furniture where someone had clearly been doing the unthinkable. Arts and crafts. <laughs> <laughs> Charles was artsy. He had gotten into making stained glass windows. That's he awesome. was the one making these Baphomet stained glass windows. That's amazing. This sounds like really nice. Oh, it's fucking cool. All right. I love this place. Um, the other thing that I couldn't work into this little story was he also had like, um, stuff that I'm pretty sure you can buy at like garden centers, but like depictions of Pan and so Pan is the spring God. And then there's the other God, which is like the autumn God. All right. So he had two outbuildings. One was for the, uh, for the toilet, I think. Mm -hmm. And the other one was for they had just found an old refrigerator, which mm -hmm. is naturally insulated and dug it into the ground and just left it there. So it wasn't plugged in or anything. It was literally just a cold storage box. Mm -hmm. So if they did have produce that they needed to keep cold, they would just drop it in this box. Pan's not a god. He is. He's a deity. He's just a tear. I thought. I thought he was a god. But either way, just more cool imagery, like no matter where you turn. Oh, no. Yeah, he is. Yeah. I thought oh, okay, so. cool. But he was God. like not a top tier God. He was a fucking a menace and stuff. God of the wild, shepherds, flocks, rustic music, impromptus, companion of the nymphs. There you go. There you go. Anyway, Charles, like no matter where you looked, there was really cool, probably not very Christian imagery mm -hmm. which just lent to the whole feeling of the place you know and as well the house was decorated with some of charles's paintings as well as more pentagrams and stuff like that scattered throughout the house and i will admit some of the paintings as cool as they are are pretty grim a pair of paintings showed on one canvas on one side um a fetus in the womb with bizarre distorted features and then on the opposite side, kind of mirror image, was presumably the same fetus, only now it was a skeleton in a grave. Very technically good, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But kind of startling images, I think, if yeah, you're yeah, not yeah. expecting it, you know what I mean? grim, grim. Grim, yeah. Pretty dark, but again, I like it. I like weirder art anyway, like Hieronymus Bosch and shit like that, you know? The weirdest painting, though, not for the content, but for the context, was a self-portrait of Charles, gagged and bleeding from his forehead, not unlike Jesus with the thorny hat, but it looks like he's in a room that's being bricked up 
it's like you're looking through the last gap in the wall uh, before yeah, yeah, it gets yeah. bricked up mm-hmm. and you get the impression that he's completely bound honestly to me it looks like he's wearing a gimp suit complete with the uh like the collar with the big loop mm-hmm. and uh, and the whole stuff so that's kind of strange right mm-hmm. you know as being a self-portrait but let me tell you Charles was into the occult, like we mentioned. Not just for shock value, but he was really into the occult. Scrying was one of the things that he got into at one stage. And one night while doing a, quote, mirror gazing experiment, he believed that he saw how he was going to die. And this painting came as the result of that. Although he never told anyone more than that, as far as I can tell. And he also apparently was known to tell people that it wasn't really him in the painting. But it was. Um, And regardless, it's a weird one, right? Another little hobby that he got into was tarot. So he'd become confident in his practice and would give readings to people who visited Corpsewood. He would never force it, but like if the conversation came up, you'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, like I'll, I'll read your cards for you. That's cool. Yeah. But he was supposed to be eerily accurate. Hmm. Yeah, but while serious about the subject, he was typically lighthearted in his demeanor and delivery while giving the readings. One evening, though, when a group of regular locals were up at the house, because, again, people would show up at night kind of being, like, rowdy and just looking for free wine or whatever. But during the day, like, these older dudes would just show up and just kind of have a bit of a chit-chat and, like, Yeah. yeah... Probably doing what all old dads do and like staring at whatever Charles was building. (laughs) Hands behind their back, new balances Mm on. Anyway, this one day, a group of locals were up at the house and they convinced one of the lads to have a reading done. He was curious, but very skeptical. Charles did his thing, but something was not quite right. While I don't know what cards were pulled, Charles seemed troubled and tense. Claude, he whispered. I'm seeing something very serious and disturbing here. Serious how? Claude smiled. Am I going to die or something? Charles looked up from the cards and said, A transition. A transition? What the hell is that supposed to mean? Am I going to die or what? Charles paused for a second, then looked at Claude and said, It appears that way. Now that's a quote from the book that I'll reference at the end of the next episode. But while I normally wouldn't agree with like especially in tarot like or anything like that's like an unwritten rule right if even if you think this person's gonna die you're not gonna tell them right but charles told him to be especially careful within the next four to five weeks now claude just laughed it off but the following month he was found dead of a heart attack and he had just turned 38 damn yeah so look i don't know i i'm not out here vouching for the the truth in this Mm -hmm. but this author literally made so many boring chapters which were just transcripts of court readings and i feel like he's not going to try and damage his own uh his own name by just putting in a load of crap like certain other authors did on this subject Mm -hmm. that i really believe this story like if I'm not saying it 100% happened, but I think he got it from one of the people sitting at the table. Ah. Yeah. Charles never read Tarot again. And he even scrapped the book that he was writing about the subject. Wow. He was writing a book linking Tarot to science. And oh. now not necessarily saying like science, like proving it or anything like that. But he, in his crazy intelligent brain, had made links to the different the different fields of science, like, you know what I mean, okay. represented within tarot decks, mm. supposedly anyway. But after this troubling reading, he was like, all right, I'm gone too far. Probably the same as he did with the scrying when mm-hmm. he saw his own death. I'm sure he went, whoop, oh no. So when I say this man was gifted, he definitely seems to be gifted in all sorts of the meaning, you know? And I'm just going to touch on the subject of Satanism briefly because I know it's a very delicate subject for people who refuse to read. But Charles did have satanic literature lying around because he had paid the $10 fee to sign up for the limited membership. Okay, because this was kind of like Hulu with ads for Satanism because the lifetime fee was $100 and on their very limited monthly budget, they couldn't manage that. 
But like most people who identify as Satanist, he was just fed up with the oppression and hypocrisy of most organized religion. Mm. He was a gay dude brought up in a Christian church. What can you expect? Yeah, do the math. So while he did have some very shocking artifacts and all this around his house, he also had a Christian Bible on hand and was very well read in both subjects. So he could arguably argue respectfully and knowledgeably, which is a skill that very few people have actually knowing both sides of the fucking argument. He wasn't shy about it either, though. And so the two became affectionately known as the homosexual devil worshippers. <laughs> as you do. Yeah, which is funny because Joey Odom was an out and out Catholic. And when Charles would introduce himself, he's like, oh, hi, Charles, this is my partner, Joey, or my friend, Joey, we're Satanists. Joey would like jump on him saying, well, I don't know about you, but I'm a Catholic. You know, <laughs> you, I was rare, right? So this small community really did embrace him, though. Like, it, it's a very touching subject, very touching story to a point. And in that respect, it's almost just like a little Stephen King novel. Yeah. Um, in saying I like that, Stephen King novels there's always something around yeah, the corner exactly i mean look we wouldn't be talking about this if it wasn't um and like i said joey always enforced the fact that he was of the catholic faith and he definitely he decorated his room very differently from the rest of the house joey was continuously described as being kind of feminine now i don't know if that was just his mannerisms or just that energy that he gave off you know like a lot of people give off feminine energy right like i give off like strong masculine energy really mm -hmm. oh, i've never noticed but then again i feel like i give off feminine energy a lot of the time as well i think that the the fact that he played a more traditional role as housekeeper carer and cook maybe added to this as mm. well i'm not saying that he didn't Conventional have the, roles, yeah. yeah i'm not saying that he didn't have feminine traits as well but i'm sure that that didn't help when Random people were introduced as like, oh, this is Joey. He lives here and does all the cooking and cleaning. You know what I mean? While I'm off earning money. Anyway, in his room, he had an antique spinning wheel, a foot operated singer sewing machine and an antique dresser, which was decorated with perfume bottles, little glass figurines and a small toy koala. That sounds fucking delightful. Yeah. Quite different from Charles's aesthetic of witty goth. You know what I mean? Uh, and Joey definitely gets pushed into the shadows of this story, I feel. But I think it's just because Charles was actually such a large, loud character in general. And that's not to say that Joey wasn't just as much of a key player in this new community, though. The fact was, he was even asked to give away one of their friends at her wedding. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, her own father couldn't make it. So she asked Joey. It was their friend, Joan. Um, she had moved nearby because her fiance had been given a job at the local mill. He was an electrician and he would get these like year long contracts. So they were constantly moving. But this left Joan at home on her own all day. And she became sort of a fixture at Corpsewood for a while anyway, even though Charles wasn't overly nice to her all of the time. Oh, like he was actually really catty with her. Really? Yeah, it was a different side to him. I don't know whether it was jealousy or, or what was going on. Mm hmm. But again, I'm only here on one side of this yeah. thing, you know, like he sat her down one day to paint a portrait of her mm -hmm. and he was a very good artist, as we know. And while drawing this beautiful young lady, he showed her the portrait and it was like a withered old hag. And he was laughing. He was like, no, 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 this is your Gemini duality. Right. <laughs> so from my understanding, he's like, this is how you are on the inside, is it? You're this is your other side like maybe he was just like suspicious of her i i do yeah i you get that I mean? feeling yeah um because yeah while he wasn't very nice to her all the time joey was infatuated oh yeah i think in a father-daughter way yeah or maybe brother-sister way right yeah yeah but one really random thing as well was that like sometimes if charles had errands to run like in town or whatever, he would drop Joey off at Joan's house and he would drink beer, smoke weed and watch shitty daytime TV. All of which he loved, but didn't get to do at Corpsewood because they had no electricity, mm -hmm. so no TV. And Charles didn't approve of drug use, which was interesting. So another thing that I found particularly strange was that Joey would also dress up in Joan's clothes while he was there. 
because why not like that's not what i find strange i'm like go for it the odd thing was that he would make her promise not to tell charles that is weird yeah why would you hide that i don't know but i think like i don't know what this means in terms of their relationship but joey had had a bad car accident mm-hmm. while living at corpsewood um and it was a very innocent thing like a local pulled over in his jeep it was a young kid I was like, here, he had walked all the way to town, which was a, a good way. So this guy pulled over. I was like, here, Joe, like, do you want to lift up the corpse with or whatever? But the kid was like showing off at how good of a driver he was. And Joey ended up with serious brain damage. He underwent life-saving brain surgery. And after this, he was never quite the same. Damn. People said he was quite childlike after this. So I'm not sure at what point him and Joan's relationship picked up mm-hmm. you know what I mean so yeah. maybe Charles thought she was taking advantage of his newfound naivety okay anyway again this is all just me conjecture yeah does this also show Charles's very fucking controlling side though as well if well, Joey's afraid or maybe just protective yeah and again I'm just guessing here but after Charles nursed him back to health, I wonder, did he confuse him now as more of a father figure than like a lover or even like a, an equal, you know? Mm. But maybe Joan really did seem like one of his sisters now as well. Mm-hmm. If he was like reverting back to his own childhood. And I'm just realizing as I read this, this is very likely because he was actually the only boy out of all the girls. He, that... had, he had three sisters and he was uh... the only boy. So maybe so it yeah, maybe probably he was felt a, natural. Yeah, he to just think, yeah. Slip back into that situation. Maybe when he was a kid with his own sisters, he would mm-hmm. dress up in their clothes and couldn't tell their father because yeah, because because machismo. Yeah, we used to do that with our cousin. We used to because he used to come and hang out. He had a brother, no sisters, but he would come hang out with us all the time and. We do all sorts. We would dress him up all sorts of ways. <laughs> we fucking, That's what kids are supposed to do. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah. And he never cared. Like yeah. we talk about it now, he still doesn't give a shit. <laughs> I almost won a beauty pageant as a girl. Oh. And I'm still very upset over it because that bitch only won because she had a broken arm. <laughs> anyway, Joan was engaged to be married and wanted to do it in a church. Wanted to get married in a church. Um, <laughs> do it in a yeah, church. Yeah, I want to do it in a church, but that's different. <laughs> uh, no, she wanted to get married in a church and all that. But one day they decided, fuck it. Let's do it right here, baby. Motherfucking corpse wood. Okay. Charles and Joey had the garden ablaze with flowers and all. Aww. So why not? Like it, it was like really sounded like a beautiful thing. It was going to be a small affair with just friends, including their mutual friends, Sonny and Cher. Bro. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just thought it was so funny reading their names every time as I share. Rule. Joey cooked a feast for all in attendance. The maid of honor baked the wedding cake. Charles played wedding planner and decorated accordingly with pumpkins he had grown himself. Sick. Corpsewood pumpkins. He pulled out his best homemade wine, which he called Strega, meaning witch, witch. in Italian. Mm hmm. Joey walked Joan down the aisle and gave her away. And in a weird turn of events, he requested the first kiss, which she gave to him. Huh. Yeah, there's actually a photo of the two of them kissing and her husband, like, pretending not to know what was going on. Hmm. All very cute and friendly. The judge read from the Christian Bible and Charles played the harp beautifully from upstairs in the house. And the music drifted off over the land. And with that happy note, we will end this episode because next week it's not that happy. Mm. But yeah, there's Corpsewood Manor Part 1. The story of Charles and Charles Scudder and Joey Odom. Yeah. So thanks, Andrea. Well, I'm, I'm going to revel in this feel good right now. I'm yeah. going to go floss my teeth, brush my teeth and mouthwash and go to bed. I think I'll join you. Okay. Hopefully you guys have a relaxing evening. Make sure to follow us on all of our socials. Uh, Become a patron member and help me buy floss. (laughs) (laughs) We actually do really want to push the uh, patron thing, obviously, because, you know, it it helps us with everything. But as well, like today, we just turned down a sponsor because it just didn't sit right with us. 
And yeah. that's not something that we are really in the position to do lightly. So, uh, you know, just being honest with you guys. Um, yeah, we don't want to promote bullshit. Yeah. So if you want to support us, Patreon's $2 a month. Hop on there. You'll get a bunch of free crap. It's cheaper than a cup of coffee. Yeah. And other than that, do what you can do. Rate, review, tell all of your friends. Spooky season coming up. We will be getting spooky before you know it. See. That's all. Okay. Bye. Bye.